1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books, German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Pamela Potter about her excellent new book, Art of Suppression, Confronting the Nazi Past in Histories of the Visual and Performing Arts, published by the University of California Press in 2016. Dr. Potter, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. Um, it's a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, We like to traditionally begin these interviews by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you teach, how you get interested in history, um, the basics.
0: Okay, and I'll try my best to keep it brief and not tell you my whole life story. Um, I'm a professor of German at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but my training actually is in the field of musicology, um, I got interested in this topic, really in high school when I was uh doing a project on the holocaust and when I got to college, I became a major i did a double major in music and history and discovered that there was a huge gap actually in knowledge at that time or in interest in research on music in the third reich um and It went on from there. I started investigating. Music in the Third Reich, and then I did my dissertation on uh, in musicology on the musicology discipline in Nazi Germany, actually before, during, and after, noting the continuities and also noting the complicity of the musicology discipline with the politics of the Third Reich. And then uh, when I came to the University of Wisconsin, that one of my assignments um, was... Um, to teach any course I wanted in German, so I decided I wanted to teach a course on Nazi culture. And one thing I noticed in teaching this course, a large lecture course, and interacting with students, was that there were lots of cognitive dissonances in the field. There seemed to be a lot of insistence among historians of the arts that the arts were very rigidly controlled by Nazi leaders, that Nazi Germany was anti-modern, and yet all of the things that my students and I were reading were kind of short on evidence, on really consistently being able to argue that these things were true. So this is something that I've been pondering for decades, really, and, and it got to the point where I realized that someone needed to write a book to look at why these tensions exist in the way people write the history of the visual and performing arts in Nazi Germany and um, why uh, why we what we need to do to get beyond these cognitive dissonances and these tensions and that's what what inspired me to write this book
1: Okay. Uh, before I ask you specific questions about about this because um, I want I want to talk to you about the the assumptions that have been made and and how they should be corrected but first I want to ask you about the differences Challenges of writing a historiographical study as opposed to a work of original research, because th- this book is a is a historiography. Um, I think we should talk a little bit about how they're different and and why you chose to do that.
0: Well, that is a really excellent question because one of the thing one of the most challenging things I found in writing this book and circulating drafts of it to colleagues and and external reviewers and so on was that. People approached this text thinking that I was going to be writing about the history of the arts in Nazi Germany. In other words, I was going to be reconstructing what happened. Um, And part of that is because most of my work prior to this point was very heavily archival and really was intending on reconstructing the history, how it happened. But in this book, what I'm not really, uh, I had to make it clear, particularly in in the introduction, and hopefully I did make that clear enough, is that this is not a book that mines the archives to find out what happened. Rather, it's a book that looks at how historians have understood the role of the arts in Nazi Germany and, in many cases, misunderstood. And as a historiography, in other words, a a history of how history is written, um, what I felt it was important to do was to see how the politics of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to the present um, have influenced the way this history has been written and have hindered um, historians from asking certain questions that might have been considered taboo given the the global political situation. So I think it's really important. I'm, I'm gl- really glad you asked that question first off because I think it's important for anyone reading this book to know that this is not a history, but rather my primary documents are not archival documents. Rather, my primary documents are the histories of the arts that have been written since the 1940s uh, all the way up to the present.
1: Um, so, I hope that makes it no, I think it makes it um, very clear um, so now I want to ask you about the assumptions um, that you're attacking you're tackling attacking in this book um, what has what half historians said about the arts, both visual and performing um, and we'll go through each because you 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 take different periods, um, so we'll start at the beginning and, and work our way up to the present um,
0: right so. Um, the overriding um, assumptions are um, things that I, I try to isolate into two big categories uh, in, my inter- in my first chapter. Um, what I call first of all, Nazification. And nazi- Nazification is a term that I'm using to describe how historians have assumed that the arts were quote-unquote Nazified. Um, and I break that that problematic concept of notification that historians have, have have applied I break that out down into two categories on the one hand is what I call structural notification and the other one I refer to as aesthetic notification now these are very broad categories but essentially what they what they are describing is that um, structural notification the way I use this term means that historians have assumed that there was this very well-organized, rigid, structural administration of the arts, where the arts were all very closely monitored, very closely controlled, and very closely micromanaged. So that's one assumption. The other assumption that I call aesthetic Nazification is that historians have assumed that the Nazi regime were not were not only able to control what was done, but also to control how it was done. In other words, they were imposing very rigid aesthetic guidelines that were basically eliminate, trying to eliminate anything progressive or modern, and trying to bring uh, cultural uh, cult- the culture of Germany back into the 19th century. That Nazi the Nazi, pro- the Nazi agenda was um, uh, single-mindedly anti-modern. So those are the two main assumptions that i'm um, I'm uh, working with. Now, there are some offshoots to that. Um, some of these offshoots are the assumptions that um, this uh, structural Nazification, that this 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 total control took away any free will of artists who managed to stay in Nazi Germany, and uh, of course, this in many ways, was a wonderful excuse after the war for artists and uh, artists and cultural prof- professionals who stayed in Germany for them to say, "Well, we had no choice. We had no control. We were forced to to act and behave in this way." Um, the other, uh, the aesthetic notification side of things, um, had some corollaries as well uh, because it allowed. Uh, non, uh, it, it allowed the the um, the um, enemies of Nazi Germany in World War II to say that we were more progressive. We were allowing for artistic freedom. What we were doing was the complete it was the complete antithesis of the type of art that was that was being tolerated in Nazi Germany. And uh, the other thing that that it um, proliferated was this idea that the good German art progressive, modern, free-thinking art could only be cultivated outside of Germany by the exiles, by those who fled Nazi Germany.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you specifically about um, exile, exiles um, first, before I asked about um, post-war occupation. Um, Sure. So you had many artists that were were fleeing um, Nazi Germany, Um, and so they're I think you sort of make the case that historians have taken their, what they what they tell them, or what they said when they were moving to other countries to try to practice their art, sort of at face value. Um, right. That, um, but there was, um, so if you could talk a little bit about what they're saying and why they're saying it, um, mm-hmm. and then I have a follow-up I'd like to ask.
0: Okay, so the, the situation with exiles is is extremely complicated, and um, in my second chapter, I really I dedicate my um, an entire chapter to trying to unpack the complexity of the whole exile phenomenon. On the one hand, immediately after the war, there was a tremendous influence uh, interest, excuse me, in looking at how um, the, the Allied countries had really rescued German art by welcoming exiles with open arms, um, exile intellectuals, artists, and so on. Um, and in many ways, this situation was very much romanticized uh, because when we look more closely at what exiles themselves experienced and all of their stops along the way, uh, we find that, you know, in many ways, the situation is not much different from today, that there was a resistance to bring to, to allowing foreigners in. These particular foreigners, even though they were fleeing Nazi Germany, uh, and in many cases were just completely, summarily thrown out of their positions, had their possessions taken away. Um, nevertheless, the countries that accepted them, if they did accept them, uh, held them in great suspicion. First of all, they were German. There were, there were lots of, uh, odd things going on in Germany. Secondly, why did, why were they thrown out of Germany? Well, most likely because they were communists. Um, and, of course, the anti-communist sentiment in places like the United States were, were certainly brewing at that time. And, furthermore, many of them were Jewish. Um, and anti-Semitism was not uh, an uncommon sentiment in places like the United States where and, and Britain and France, where these exiles were fleeing to. So, even though the, the, there was a very rosy picture that was painted right after the war... Um, what we find was that they were in extremely difficult positions. And in order to navigate these treacherous waters of of making themselves accepted in these these places that they were fleeing to, in some some ways they had to exaggerate the degrees of um, suppression and control that they were fleeing from in Nazi Germany and also the degree of micromanagement, not just of artistic activity, but also of aesthetics. Um, So what we find a lot with the exiles is that in order to find a home in these new places, they had to completely uh, downplay or even completely distance themselves from any leftist leanings they may have held. Um, they also, in some cases um, fell into exaggerating how bad things had been in Nazi Germany, and in this way, this also helped them to particularly in the cases of influential figures like Thomas Mann, um, gave them uh, the impetus to convince the United States in this case um, not to have no longer to hold ha- hold its isolation to stand and to combat these types of crimes against culture that were allegedly being committed in, in Nazi Germany. And, of course, they had plenty of uh, ammunition to make these claims because in Nazi Germany there were these regrettable uh, displays, such as the book burnings and the um, notorious art exhibit, of the exhibit of degenerate art and the exhibit of degenerate music, All of these things were these very, uh, hyperbolic rhetoric, rhetorically hyperbolic, um, showcase shows that were, um, that were really boasting that this is what Nazi Germany was going to do when in reality these were really just more rhetorical displays than actual, than reflecting actual policy. Nevertheless, the outside world could see that there were these. Uh, these um, attacks on on certain artists and art and culture and authors, and this of course gave the exiles plenty of ammunition to say, "Look what's going over there! Or, Look what's going on over there! That, this is why I had to leave."
1: Yeah, a, a couple of follow ups. Um, I think you make very clear in your book that not all artists are the same either. Um, they, depending on what field of art they were in. Whether painting uh-huh. music um, writing, so on, theater, um, they had different right. exile experiences, um, yeah, some of them had better networks um, right and you even make the case that in in the language language barrier is not as important, say in music um, did you um find that th- that these differences were really really wide um because you know the tendency is to sort of paint them all with one brush
0: exactly, exactly, and I think that this is also um, part it gets into the whole question of Nazi anti-modernism. the uh, corollary to that is anybody fleeing Nazi Germany is a modernist, and this was not at all the case and um, what had what has been a, a, a trope that has persisted as a result of this is that all exiles fleeing Nazi Germany, were anti-fascist, modernist, and what this has done is kind of made the whole definition of modernism that much more complicated, because there were people who were traditionalists. There were people who were um, not necessarily uh, interested in pursuing um, experimental or shocking art. But nevertheless, um, cultural historians, art historians, music historians, theater historians have have tried to force these people into that mold of being aesthetically progressive and experimental. Uh, And leftist as well. There's, There's been a tendency to try to make them all leftist, which in many cases they were not. They were actually a much more diverse group than... Um, than the the uh, then cultural history has has traditionally held them to be.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the things about that chapter that that struck me is that you know it, it makes sense when you read it um, that of course that it's not a uniformed thing, um, but you have this narrative in your mind um, that they're all the same kind of artists, same kind of ideas, and that's why they're being pushed out. Um, so I think it, it's great that you really highlighted that that's definitely not what's going on. Um,
0: I want to make one other point though: sure. is that in, in in this book, in general, there's always I always found myself in danger of being labeled as a Nazi apologist and a uh, and a, and and blaming the victims. And what I'm trying to do, particularly with my focus on the exiles, is not. Blame them for um, proliferating misconceptions about Nazi Germany, but rather to highlight how their situation was incredibly complicated. That they, they weren't all that welcome where they ended up, and how a lot of the their um, ways of negotiating these 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 tensions and these conflicts have been largely misunderstood by a lot of people who read them 20 or 30 years later. So I'm not blaming them. I'm trying to get a better insight and more sympathy into the types of uh types of obstacles that they were dealing with as exiles.
1: Yeah, and, and certainly I think anybody who reads the book um wouldn't take away uh that you were blaming them. Um I think that would be that would be definitely unfair. Um and not an accurate portrayal of what you're saying in the book. Uh, but I'm I'm glad you had the chance to to clarify that. Um, um a second follow-up about the Nazi state. Um, you also do a good job of explaining in the book that the Nazi state and Goebbels in particular, they weren't sort of all powerful in this respect, um, you know, in right. terms of being able to control every piece of art or even wanting to. Um, right. You, you, can you talk about how their attempts to control the performing and visual arts were uh, not, not uniform? In the way the exiles were not themselves uniform, and and sometimes higher up on the radar and lower on the radar, the things they had to do, wanted to do.
0: Right. So I think one, maybe a different way of of, of approaching that question would be um, to um, maybe focus a bit more on intentions, and I don't really believe, I think that that historians have have been demonstrating really for the last 50 years, although some of the more vocal uh, voices in this area have been, as I argue, have been neglected. What they've been arguing for years is that um, this uh, Nazi cultural policy did not arise out of nowhere, Uh, but it was, in fact, a response to a lot of the things that the cultural professionals themselves were lobbying for they felt that they needed um, they needed more secure economic securities they needed to be more respected in society um, and they had been lobbying for decades for these types of rights for standards professional standardization so they wouldn't have to compete with just anybody any amateur on the street who would hang out a shingle they wanted uh workers compensation they wanted health insurance you know the same types of things that people Want today. And they were, 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 these issues, these concerns were not being addressed. In the Weimar Republic, there was just no capacity to even pay attention to these issues. But once the Nazis came into power, you had people at the helm who considered themselves intellectuals, who considered themselves artists. Hitler, of course, considered himself an artist. Goebbels had a PhD, he was a novelist. A lot, uh, Rosenberg was 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 uh, very much had had been um, the head of this uh, fighting league for German culture since since the, the 1920s. So all of them considered themselves to be very much committed to the arts, and all of them also respected artists and wanted them to have a better standing, better economic situation, more security, and I would even go so far as to say more freedom to express themselves. So, when, with the f- things like the, the signature accomplishment that's always pointed to in Nazi Germany is the establishment of the Reich culture, Reich cha- uh, uh, Reich chambers of culture established under the supervision of Goebbels, the propaganda minister. But what is important to point out is that in these structures were really adapted from structure, pre-existing structures and really brought them all under one umbrella and the artistic communities themselves very much welcomed these developments um, a few examples of of uh, of 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 this um the uh each of the chambers were headed by um well-known artists in some cases the exception being the film chamber which was actually headed by um businessmen uh, because the film industry was was a very profitable business that needed to be uh, needed to be saved from economic ruin. Um, but um, this idea of the Fuhrer principle, you know, and this idea of gleichschaltung of synchronization, these were, I argue, uh, concepts that were very much welcomed by the arts professions because they felt that things had been in in complete disarray. And what these structures were doing were things like the uh, Reich Chambers of Culture were doing, were bringing all of these competing um, uh, organizations under one umbrella and really listening to their concerns and even creating some securities that hadn't existed before. Um, so um, on the one hand, I think it's important to acknowledge that The fact that they considered themselves artists, the fact that they considered themselves patrons of the arts, um, as patrons of the arts. There are examples where, for instance, Goebbels and Goering are um, competing for the same talents in their respective theaters and orchestras in Berlin, uh, and in many cases overlooking the fact that some of these very talented people were Jews or married to Jews or former leftists or homosexuals. Um, because they were more interested in uh, cultivating talent. And one other thing that, that I think requires further investigation is this measure of the, the ban on criticism that Goebbels issued in 1936. And I think there's a lot of evidence to show that this ban on criticism was not so much a draconian measure as it was something that was actually welcomed by the artistic community because they felt and i know this particularly in the case of music they felt that with the proliferation of newspapers in the, at the turn of the century pretty much anybody could be a critic could be could could write in the um in the arts sections of newspapers and could make or break careers and a lot of um, a lot of arts professions saw this unbridled criticism as a real threat to their own economic security and their own existence so I, I really do think that, first of all, it wasn't really enforced very well. It wasn't really carried out very well. But at the same time, I think Goebbels was doing it as a gesture to the to the artistic community saying, I'm going to protect you from these people who can attack you. Um, so I, I, I kind of turned the question around and looked more to the motivations. But I think another thing that's important to note is that instead of this rigid, centralized structure, what you really had was a lot of um, competing influences for cultural cultural control. So the right Culture Chamber was not the only existing centralized structural administrative structure. Um, Rosenberg was competing for power with Goebbels. Um, the 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 labor unions, the uh, German Workers' Front was competing for influence. The um, Education ministry was also trying to uh, was also pulling in other directions. So there was a lot of a lot of competition and a lot of actual disorganization when it came to um, attempts to administrate uh, to to administer culture. And then of course there were there were local interests as well who were often doing their own thing.
1: Sure, I think and I think this is an important discussion because people have this assumption that the Nazi state was. Was very you know top down, um, and that's just not the case. There were lots of competing interests, lots of competing factions, um, lots of tug of war going on. Uh, not just in the in the arts, but in other areas of the government, um, and and so I think this was good. Um, so let's let's move past the war now. Uh-huh. Um, we have we have occupation, um, uh-huh. and you and you do a chapter about occupation authorities. Um, right and and how so can you talk about how the these sort of assumptions that you spoke about in the beginning sort of manifest themselves in, during occupation and a little bit beyond, and then we'll we'll get to the cold war separately, so we'll okay, we'll do the immediate post war years first
0: okay, yeah, so in the immediate post war years um there are several things going on so, uh, on the one hand there's the the shock of the revel- revelation of how far the cruelties had been carried out, the discovery of of, of the, what we now call the Holocaust, the concentration camps, the death marches, the um, vast numbers of um, innocent civilians murdered, and um, the uh, I think the uh, the Allies, the Americans probably more than others, were really shocked at what they discovered. And um, the Soviets, having lost so many um, during the war, were um, were ready to uh, were, were very were, were angry and vindictive. And I think that this this shock, and I think you probably deal with this some in, in your work on the on the war trials. This shock was had a very strong moral imperative, and at the same time um, created a really difficult paradox for people to wrap their minds around in other words this paradox being here was germany germany had been the beacon of culture and science and uh, philosophy poetry art music dealing with this paradox of how germany had, had this beacon of culture this castle on the hill could have been uh could have let itself be led into committing such acts of barbarity. And I think that this is a, 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 um, a very uh, difficult paradox for much of the world to comprehend. Um, and this is also a difficult conundrum for the Allies as they uh, as they occupied Germany. On the one hand, they wanted to do what they could to make sure this never happened again. Um, they... Um, came up with this notion of re-education and denazification to try to erase, to try to eliminate any types of influences that might have led to this barbarity. But at the same time, they completely underestimated the scope of the project. Um, Because how can you denazify Germany? How can you eliminate these cultural imperatives, these ideologies, these Feelings of inferiority, these, these, um, um, eccentric notions of nationalism, how can you isolate that just to this 12, 12 year period? You have to look back to the entire, you know, at least 100 years back of German cultural history to, to understand the roots of where this was coming from. So this whole idea of denazification was, was well intentioned, but not very well thought out. The other thing was that, um, the Allies in some cases felt that they didn't want to um didn't want to replicate be be dictatorial as the Nazis had been and wanted to take more of a hands off approach and teach the Germans that uh culture didn't have to be dictated because that was their perception of, of what was going on in Nazi Germany. Uh, a lot of that perception had been um had been uh, um had been informed by what the exiles had been telling them. And um so what happened was on the one hand they wanted to transform uh German culture, take do undo what the Nazis had did. At the same time they didn't want to be too heavy-handed in the process, and what ended up happening was things basically remained the same. There was very little change. Um there were um, efforts to uh, revitalize what was supposedly suppressed, this degenerate art and music. Um, there were efforts to um, uh, to to show that 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 things could be more free and more liberated. Um, but in the end, what what ended up is things really didn't change very much. What then happened, of course, was that the emphasis shifted and the cultural battleground of, um, of Germany became a, a Cold War battleground. And uh, as the two Germans. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no,
1: I was, I just wanted to ask before we move to the Cold War did uh, did you have any, uh, a large amount of people who had been exiled trying to come back? Um, was there an encouragement for them to come back, um, either by uh, occupation authorities yeah, for the or. Most-
0: Part not, and uh, this is something that, uh, an issue that I've been grappling with actually ever since I, I did my study of musicology, is that there was very little interest in bringing back, um, uh, inviting, uh, for instance, exiled Jews to come back to, to, to resume the positions that they had been removed from. But what, there, what we did see were um, those exiles who had... Um, Become citizens of their new homelands, coming back as experts on Germany, um, coming back in American and British uniforms, and and, um, and uh, coming back from uh, exile in Moscow, and um, uh, becoming cultural experts on Germany, and carrying out a lot of the of uh, working a lot on establishing the occupation and cultural policies. Uh, overseeing the denazification, re education programs, and so on. So they did come back in that way, but, um, most of them chose not to stay or were not, uh, were not welcomed back to stay. And of course, when they came back, they found that this country that they had left behind had been completely transformed, that the people that their former colleagues had, had, you know, had abandoned them, uh, long ago, and they couldn't quite come to terms with that. Many of them discovered that their families had all been, had, had all been killed. Um, so again, they found themselves in, in a very difficult position. Um, but because they were fluent in German, because they understood German culture, they were enlisted both, um, uh, in intelligence, uh, in, in, uh, the countries, their countries of exile. And both um, in coming back as uh, as consultants and trans and interpreters and interrogators, uh, coming back into Germany and and fulfilling
1: those roles. And often with not the warmest feelings towards their former country, and probably no interest in changing the the narrative that they themselves used when they were leaving.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a reasonable assumption.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, so I, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier when we were moving into the next phase—the the sort of Cold War phase. Um, right. The, the Europe is reorienting itself. West Germany is now our friend. Um, right. How? So, what changed with the Cold War? How did the the, the mindset change? Um, how did the narrative change? Um, and who drove the change?
0: Well, the narrative changed. Um, by those who, were by um, actually, in some cases also um, uh, German exiles to some degree, but mostly um, the CIA had a, had, a, had a tremendous role in all of this as well. Um, the um, as the uh, Soviets were uh, formulating these anti-formulas policies in, in in the hands of Zhdanov and his edicts. And um uh, targeting uh, formalism and you know, what we would consider to be modern and progressive, what they would call formalism and and uh, alienated from the masses, um, the um, uh, Western allies were seeing this as an opportunity to promote um, more experimental uh, artistic expression. To surreptitiously, uh, through the CIA to promote experimental visual art, um, less, uh, surreptitiously to pro- through the radio stations to promote, uh, modern music, um, to, uh, proliferate the idea that Bauhaus architecture was something that had been pro- suppressed by the Nazis and to promote the idea that experimental architecture was the wave of the future. And, of course, the Soviets were uh, taking the opposite stance, that art needed to be for the people, um, that uh, they were uh, building building things like Stalin Alley and Berlin was um, um, continuing this this uh, neoclassical grandeur that Hitler had also favored. And what happened was both sides started blaming the, the other side of perpetuating Nazi aesthetics. And um um on the one hand calling it imperialism, on the other, other hand calling it totalitarianism, but but trying to align the new adversaries with continuing the Nazi legacy.
1: Hmm. Um and was this something that the 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 art professions themselves um participated in? Did you have sort of Western German musicians making this accusation of Eastern German musicians, or was this a political, at the political level, um, or you know, media, news media level?
0: Kind of a combination of of both. I think what's what's most interesting is that um I think on on some level, East German and West German artists and musicians and and intellectuals wanted wanted to keep working together. (laughs) Um, In some cases, they were indeed uh, uh, criticizing the other side of of imperialism on the one hand, um, uh, totalitarianism on the other, but... um, they were also um taking advantage of the opportunities that were given to them. So if the CIA was going to give you studio space to do to do progressive art, you were going to take it. If the uh um radio stations controlled by the Allies were going to give you airtime and commissions to write modern music, you were going to do it. And by the same token the same thing was happening in the East. If you were getting encouragement and commissions to produce art that was more accessible to the public, uh, music that was more uplifting and patriotic, then you would do it. But at the same time, there was really not this stark division. In, in many ways, a lot of the artistic pursuits in both East and West um, may have been divergent at the beginning, but really started to come together over the years. Um, because they really weren't, you know, the, the arts, artistic expression was, was politicized on some level, but not universally. And as far as, um, let's say in the case of music or theater, as far as performance outlets, a lot of the repertoire was still pretty much, the, you were still listening to Beethoven, and you were still seeing plays of Schiller in both mm-hmm. East and West. These these traditions, these standard repertoires, were not being uh, altered all that much. Hmm.
1: Um, so let's move a little bit to the future. Um, what is the future of this of this field? And, and what suggestions? I, I'm more interested in what suggestions you would have for people interested in the visual and performing arts. Where where do we where do they go next?
0: First, they have to read my book, of
1: course. <laughs> of course. Sure, yeah, absolutely, yes. Do that. <laughs>
0: Um but, um after they've done that, I think uh, what people will start hopefully start realizing is that the questions that we've been asking all all this time have maybe not been the most productive uh, questions to be asking. Um, the question of um, it, what is Nazi art or the question of rather than saying, did the Nazis really control uh, uh, the arts. As in, instead of ask, asking, did they control? One asks, how did they control, and how did artists respond to it? So I think rather than saying how did how did artists exist in this repressive um, repressive system, we have to start asking, was that really the case, and what kind of um, benefits did artists uh, artists and cultural professionals see in this in this um, uh, this new system. So that's one thing is is to stop asking the question how did they deal with it but really start questioning was it really that bad. The second question is um, stop asking the question what is not the art and I think it's important to say to to ask what was the art of the 1930s and are there similarities um between what we see going on in Germany and what we see going on in the United States and France in other words was this the culture and the art of the 1930s that was more universally um, exchanged and understood and 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 driving the the aesthetics. Um, the other question I think we need to um, look at is um, as we look at you know stop, stop trying to show the differences and look more at the similarities. Is um, what was it if if it wasn't the style? or the system of control that made something specifically Nazi, what was it that was distinct about Nazi Germany? And that's where I think we need to start looking at things like rhetoric. The way, not so much that um, uh, the type of art that was promoted or how it was controlled, but rather how any art produced in Nazi Germany, any cultural product of Nazi Germany, Regardless of whether they had been influenced initially by Jews or communists, everything that was created was celebrated as um, the cultural production of the new Germany. And I think it's really the, the rhetoric that's really, for us, really too important to acknowledge. Because one of the things that I think set um, historians off on the wrong course in the first place was to accept all of this boasting. Uh, of, of cultural achievements, of eradicating Jewish influence, all of these things, accepting all of that at face value, when it was really more hyperbole, really more wishful thinking than a report on the status quo. So I think we need to recognize the power of rhetoric, and I think we also need to look more carefully at um, the uh, power of spectacle, ceremony, um, mass gatherings, media, all of these things that were very powerful um, mechanisms for winning over the German population. And I would add means that were not exclusive to Germany. Um, These were tools that were effectively used in fascist Italy, and some have also argued tools that were effectively used in Roosevelt's America. So I think we we need to um, stop First of all, stop isolating the Nazi period as, as, a, as a, uh, a historical anomaly. We need to show, we need to look at continuities from before 1933 and after 1945. We also need to look at similarities between what was going on in Nazi Germany and what was going on elsewhere in the world. And um, we also, I think the most important thing is we need to, I think by by recognizing these devices... That were used to win people over. Um, we can start seeing how some of these devices are 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 these devices and tactics and strategies are still with us today. Yeah, so, what- if anything, I think that's the most important thing that I would hope that people would take away from this book is to stop viewing Nazi Germany as some um, extraterrestrial <laughs> dystopia uh but seeing it as a place where people lived their lives were found themselves won over by a lot of the the rhetoric and xenophobia that they were constantly being uh being fed um how this allowed them to um witness the um the persecution of their neighbors and not do anything about it and um how they found a lot of hope and promise in uh, what, what they were hearing on a daily basis and how these messages were effectively transmitted with this newly found power of media, of mass gatherings, of, um, uh, and, of, uh, and of effective rhetorical devices.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot in this book that is very timely. Um, and I, I'm glad you got the chance to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about that. And I think those are some Some great things, great questions for people to think about. Um, Hopefully they will start by reading your book, and then (laughs) they can go and investigate some of these other things. Um, Well, I've taken up a lot of your time today, um, but I do have one final question before I let you go. Um, What are you working on now?
0: Well, uh, a couple of projects. I've just finished um, co-editing a collection of essays on uh, music in World War II, which actually does get back to these questions of uh, new media and how they completely transformed the, the uses and the role of music in um, in the Second World War, um, and we're hoping that, that that will come out next year. Um, a short-term project I'm interested in pursuing is actually, um, and I think this is uh, maybe typical of other author, authors as well, is that when you first set out to write a book, you're very ambitious, but there's always, at least this has been my experience, there's always one chapter that you just don't have time to write. And the one chapter I didn't get to write, I think, might actually be an extended essay or even a small book, um, looking at how the uh, whole phenomenon of denazification, um, which was really a fiasco and and a bad experience of both the Germans and the Allies, um, has been kind of underplayed in in uh, German history. Um, and yet, I find that in the writing of in the work of Art historians, theater historians, music historians, when who are so focused on the life and works of individual artists, individual cultural figures, there still seems to be a very strong imperative of denazification in all of the things that people write. And still, when you're dealing with someone who lived through the Nazi period, um, to try to label them very black and white ways as either a Nazi or a non-Nazi. And I think that this has really permeated a lot of the ways that these figures are still being treated in um, in, the cult- in, in cultural history. So that's one thing I, I, I would like to finally get out. And beyond that, I've been I've been working on a very long term project over many years of collecting, going back to doing more archival work um, and writing a uh, history of um, musical institutions in Berlin. Uh, from the 1880s up to the um, building of the Berlin Wall. So that's my bigger project that I hope to uh, finish in the next few
1: years. Well, those all sound fascinating. No pressure to get them done quickly or anything, but I hope when you do get them <laughs> done, um, I can have you back on the show to talk about them. Um,
0: well, that'll be wonderful. You
1: know, um, I want to say again that I, I really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, I really like this book. Uh, I think people should go out and read it. Uh, um And so, and I also want to thank everybody for listening to New Books in German Studies, uh, again, a part of the New Books Network. And we will see everybody next time.